Action! Mm. <laughs> Hello, Sean. It's the return of David Macmillan, and he has filmed 11, or perhaps even this might be the 12th true crime podcast in the studio. What could possibly keep the audience engaged for a dozen eps? They probably fell asleep and woke up just in time to switch it off. <laughs> Hello, people. David Macmillan has been incarcerated in five continents, multiple prisons, escaped from death row multiple times, including from Thailand. And I would urge people to go back to episode five or six, I think it is, and listen to David describe this breathtaking account of how the stars aligned and he managed to get out of death row in Thailand. Yeah, that was 1996, and I had a bit of good fortune with me. Uh, managed to uh, find my way around by getting lost and ending up at the right wall. You know what uh, tipped me to that, by the way, Sean? I walked past um, one of the buildings that held the uh, AIDS victims, uh, guys, and it was so distinctive, uh, I'm being footed, yeah, so distinctive that the smell, the odor, and I, I thought I didn't want to be spotted by any of the, this place was full of trustees, 12,000 people had held in 10 different sub-prisons, uh, surrounded by a moat and electricity on top of the thing. So um, anybody spotting me could rat me out, and would, and would, except for the AIDS sufferers. When I looked in, the moonlight showed up on their pasty, wan faces. I can only imagine the pain and suffering they were in, so exhausted. But they just kind of looked at me, and I like to think they wished me well, because I did get to the, the wall over uh, Marsbar Creek which was the sewer that ran around the inside. Papillon's Island of the Lepers has nothing on this. But that was, uh, that's certainly worth listening to. And there, I've been here so many times because I didn't learn my lesson and kept at it from the age of 18, started smuggling everything from gold video heads, not Swiss watches that went out in the 40s. Um, Oh, uh, cannabis, opium, uh, cocaine, everything. Um, and made and lost a few fortunes. Um, ended up arrested again in Pakistan, um, which was somehow, in a way, worse uh, than being in Thailand. And in the previous episodes, we dealt with most of Pakistan. And it's, if you want to... Look, people don't really, they think Pakistan, oh yeah, it's a poor country, people are at each other, it's kind of a lot of fundamentalists on the border causing trouble in Afghanistan. Eh, all true, but to understand it, I mean, I couldn't even speak about it coherently for years, um, and, but I had to, to write Unforgiving Destiny, available on Amazon. <laughs> uh, and because it was kind of so hard to understand how the country worked. You know, I'd heard that 22 families controlled the whole place. But can you imagine a court session where uh, if you're poor, you have to pay the prisoner clerk who puts you on the list to go to court, and then the drivers. And then when you get to the court, you've got to bung the, uh, the registrar there to um, have you listed. And But if you're a classed prisoner, Yes, they had different classes of prisoner. You could, um, you didn't have any shackles, no handcuffs. You had your own personal guard. 
and you'd send him uh, shopping or, or whatever at lunchtime, or go get some food, and see whoever you wanted. In fact, court days were where you did your main sorting out of things. So I can hear you thinking, people thinking, well, okay, if it was so easy, why not just wander away from there? Into what? <laughs> into the hands of the people who helped me, who put me up? That's from one prison into another. So really that was the second phase of learning hard lessons about different places. And David started out in Australian supermax in the early episodes as well, very harrowing accounts of what happened there. So if you're not familiar, the playlist will be in the description box below the video. David recently popped up on Posh Pete Part 3. I'll put that down there. And listening to the early eps this morning, David had 50 YouTube subscribers when he started out. And our goal was to get help him get up to 5,000. He has smashed that now. He's at 7,000. So we now have a new goal to help David get up to 10,000 subscribers. So the link to his channel will be in the description box. And so many people just say, you know, how can this well-spoken elderly gentleman have got in... Oh, wait a minute, elderly? <laughs> elderly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wreckage. You're looking at the wreckage of a misspent life. But, you know, people who give up their vices, uh, as I found often, you know, all the people that gave up their hard drugs, their, you know, their drinking, their wanton disregard for any sort of codes of behavior, they all declined very rapidly after that start. Look at David Crosby. Huh? He went out. Uh, we could, I'm sure viewers could think of lots of people who went on the wagon and then straight into the grave. But I'll put you off. True. So I kept on making these mistakes. And um, where we find ourselves uh, at this point in 11 or 12, I've um, managed to get out of uh, the worst of Pakistan prisons and kind of cleaned up everything I can there. Um, there was uh, the cousin of my longtime friend and protector, uh, a tribal lord from Baluchistan, Mir Nurjan Magsi, who I met... Um, Really, when I was uh, 23, uh, wandering around in, in that part of the world. And he, you know, have you ever met somebody who, and you can tell straight away they're respected by everybody around? You would have found that oh, in yeah. Arizona all yeah, the time. Yeah. And the, you're getting along well enough with them. They seem to like you. you know, you've got something to talk about. And I know where you were. You were... Um, being more literate and being able to handle paperwork, you you were valuable on that score. But did you ever find you had that great doubt where you think this powerful person didn't become lord of his domain without being ruthless? Am I just a tool that can be discarded when Indeed, I have yes. no longer use? Yeah. Uh, That's how they establish themselves, isn't it? Yeah. I mean... I suppose my only way out of that problem was to um, make myself being more valuable alive than dead or set up and, and used. For example, the, the, in the Thai prison, a lot of the SAP 
couriers, mules. I don't. I never regarded my personal couriers that way, but they certainly regarded that way. They would be just used up on four or five runs and then shopped to the police. Mm. So, um, in in everything I did, I tried to always. And it was not an entire lie. It was just not really well formed that the future was better with me in it and functioning than not. And that more or less kept me alive for a long time. But my uh, dear Lord John Magsy, the tribal lord, um, he was facing a lot of charges. The great September 30 massacre of 120-odd people in um, Quetta uh, it was a trial that never ended. It had been going on 10 years. So I wouldn't say his hands were entirely clean. Um, but it wasn't any of that that brought about his death. He died in a street at evening um, when an attempt had been made on his life, which he'd survived uh, in a in a way that to me, I was only there because his another cousin had opened a, a subway. A branch um, franchise. And uh, Norjohn kind of picked up on it before any of us. There was something not right. He could really read a street. Now, the, the great crime writer now passed on, John le Carre, said that a foreigner can never really read the street of uh, another country, not his own culture. I don't think that's entirely true. Um, Surely, if we lived there long enough, uh, picked up on, on mannerisms. Uh, though where you were was a place I never played in the United States because I found even the crooks there um, v seemed to be a bit of an actor as part of them. Maybe not when you cross the border into Mexico. The act is the reality. But um, certainly in the United States proper, um, I... I, I couldn't tell whether they were potential informers or they were playing it straight. Did, did you ever find that harder to read than English people? So in my case, we established relationships with the locals early on in the rave ecstasy scene, okay. which insulated me from outside threats because they can read the street and everything that was happening on the streets then got reported back to me. Okay, so it's like you had about 5,000 field agents or something like 200. that. 200. Wow. Yeah. Uh, how do you remember names of 200 people? <laughs> My guy. <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> most of the ones who were closest to me, Acid Joey, Joey Crack, Wild Man, uh, um, uh. they're all deceased now. Because they're all such high risk, you know, the yeah. lifestyles that, that they pursued mm. were very high risk. And, and a little careless about health. Big, big drug, dr drug consumption was massive. Mm. Wild Man yeah. was a drinker too, wasn't he? Yeah, he did he drink a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it's true, it's always good to be a survivor um, because at least we're here to tell the story. Indeed. And that's what we're doing. Yes. I, uh, one of the things, um, so all of Pakistan was kind of behind me. You know, your past never is, is it? There are moments I'm sure you wake up like you're in Arizona still. Um, but um, I managed to get back into the country on unsatisfactory documents. I mean, I prefer the passports that I'd get myself, you know, 
apply for one way or another. Of course, it's changed now. You can't just use some... Um, what did the police used to call it to my face? Dead baby's birth certificate. Let's not say babies. It was nine. I mean, he had a bit of a life <laughs> before succumbing to a swimming accident. No, that won't work because the, the deaths are, are now correlated. But there I was. I arrived in Oslo, uh, and it was um, just about to turn into the year 2000. Um, I was hoping my tan had kind of faded because I was in transit at Athens, and had a Macintosh I'd um, borrowed from somebody, bought at a kind of big warehouse over there, um, and managed to get um, back into Sweden, um, where I had old friends that I had to find out what happened to. Because, uh, as you know, as, as you know, in, in smuggling or there's usually some stock somewhere around that uh, is unaccounted for or some money to be paid that hasn't been collected. So you live in hope. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, don't live in hope on this one <laughs> because money finds a home. It does. <laughs> like some miscreant little street tramp, it latches onto people <laughs> and goes in their pockets. If you think you'll ever find lost money, no, no, no. You know, I even had somebody... Um, go into one of my um, storage lockers in, where was it? Down in Fulham. Oh, what kind of idiot. I should just, I mean, it was paid up for a bit. What was the urgency? I thought the number of the box had been left. People, if you find yourself in a prison, doing nothing is what it's all about. Don't do anything. You can't save anything or get somebody to go and do something or... Mm. Even worse, think you can get a little enterprise going from long distance. I've tried that once too. And it wasn't even a, a thing. Uh, it, it, it came up later from uh, Denmark, but I, I'll, I'll go into that later on. But w in essence, what it was was trying to find work for my traveling people. And a couple of them, including, um, well, uh, and my wife called him the, the, the lollipop man, you know, the guy who does the traffic. Of it yeah. Because yeah. he looks so ordinary and innocent. Um, because he was a bit chubby, he had the nickname, his code, code working name was Harry Lyme, which is from the old um, film with Orson Welles. Um, and what sort of a. Um, Code names did you give people? Was it, did you base them on actors or, or? So it's all just like nicknames from the scene that we were in, really. So it was their actual nickname. Nobody nickname. ever had real names that they used. Everyone just had a nickname. It's funny, you would never actually get to know their real name. Yeah, which is good because the cops couldn't no. figure out who we were. And you wouldn't carelessly say it when you're being monitored by something like yeah. that. Um, I knew a couple of safe crackers many years ago. Nobody really knew their, their own names. I think perhaps their lawyers. <laughs> Man, that's about it. Maybe their mother. I don't know. Um, and, and I mean, think of it in London how many my weekend texts from uh, 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 dealers are always from somebody called AJ or Junior. 
How many dealers are called, hey, Junior, eh? remember when you street-cornered me for those two grams, you bastard? Anyway, about 100,000 juniors have become, ooh. <laughs> um, so um, Oslo was a, a choice on purpose, uh, as all travel arrangements should be, because it's not in the European Union, um, and yet you're treated like you are. So no heavy checks on anything. If you um, show a EU passport checked, no, looked at perhaps. So that was a good way in. And, and once in there, then you can take um, all sorts of transport from there across lands. Um, now, I suppose um, the first place I... Um, and went to from there was I came back to London um, to see, I mean, my house had been long passed on to somebody else. The landlord, uh, <laughs> he wasn't entirely very helpful. Um, you might recall I had uh, a girlfriend in London at the time, Eloise Morse, and I hadn't been entirely frank with her. <laughs> mm. She didn't know anything about what I did, but she suspected something not good. Once in, in one of the flats I had, she looked at a passport that I'd carelessly left, cover closed, and she went to take it, and she said, no, I won't. I, I'm worried about what I might see. <laughs> and true enough, she wouldn't have seen any of the names she knew me by. Uh, and, um, but um, she... she she said to me once, oh, you could be a um, a money trafficker or, or a, a, a drugs launderer. I think she had that backwards, you know. But I got the general point. Um, but we settled on troublemaker uh, as, a, as an <laughs> occupation. Um, I, she'd actually been to the my old house too. The reason I even had an interest there, I still had a... Um, and I tell you what, I've mentioned this before, that there was £2,000 behind the PowerPoint box stuffed in there. Oh, yeah, what happened on, to that? On, on the stairs. Well, um, yeah, I couldn't get in there to find out. It's not the kind of thing there's any point bringing up. Can you imagine you call somebody and say, oh, look, uh, you know that house you were renting? Uh, there was a couple of grand in there, you know, behind there. Couldn't you have done the electrician thing? Oh, uh, yeah, I was sent by the... Uh, well, luckily I didn't because it turned, the people who were living in there were half his family. But he wanted to kind of... So I looked through the window and my old furnishings were still there. Rang the landlord. Oh, the police took everything, he said. Oh, really? Yeah, furniture, clothes, a lot. You know. mm, I'm just having seen it. Okay. Oh, yeah, but a uh, very nice overcoat. Uh, listen, I'm down in Oxfordshire. Why don't you come down there? And, and we'll... um, He didn't have foul intent. He was just one of these um, self-styled, upper-crust businessmen that was all curious about it. I mean, bad enough when Eloise finally tracked him down, he'd said to her, oh, David, uh, two tons of cocaine in, uh, in what was it? Karachi. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did say to Eloise, it would take me a little bit longer to get back uh, if, if it was that, or quicker. I <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a peculiar thing, that part of the world. It's very expensive, cocaine, um, because there's no natural 
source of it there, uh, so I'm told. Anyway, um, but it was no easy repair job on Eloise. Um, she didn't want to really know anything about what had happened. So what I did was I thought, give her a chance to walk out. So I kind of painted a picture of myself as um, burnt out and, and not connected to anything. I rented a place in Sloan Avenue. It was just a studio apartment. But I took her uh, to my brother's place um, because I was staying there for a couple of days, but not at the time. I thought, yeah, I can be the, you know, the oddball of the family in my brother's little family, the reprobate uncle or something like that. So that might put her off. Now, I mean, you're probably thinking, what, what are you trying to do there, David? You want to get her back or you want to dump her? I, I wanted an easy way out, I suppose. So, uh, and I got along well enough with my brother, though he's pretty cynical. You know, after all that time, even in um, uh, when I got back from uh, Thailand, uh, I turned up at the Finsbury Park house, uh, having called him. Hey, he didn't say anything. And I got there late because of Heathrow and some other stuff. And his wife had gone to bed. The kids were asleep. Um, and he sort of looked up and went to say something like, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> but decided that would only open up um, you know, the kind of 10 episodes <laughs> of recordings we've done. So instead he said, um, uh, there's uh, fresh towels in the guest room and uh, I still eat Cheerios, so there's plenty in the cupboard. Uh, we'll catch up tomorrow which we never really did. By the time I woke up, I was already heading off into town and he looked up from his home office desk, just said, uh, let uh, Anna Maria, his wife, let her know if you're not coming back for dinner, there's an envelope on the kitchen table for you, uh, which I took with me. So I, I didn't even have my um, addresses or anything. I mean, there's nothing left. You can imagine, um, I don't know where anybody is. Uh, I don't know what's left. Um, I'd already burnt everything by disobeying a rule. When was it recently we were talking about it? When you're in prison, don't try and get anything done. Just uh, read a few books or something. You can't fix stuff. Do not open the treasure stores, <laughs> Aladdin's Cave, to anybody. Sure, they'll take care of it, all right. <laughs> Uh, the guy I sent to the locker, I don't know what he did. I, you know what annoyed me? I didn't mind him stealing all the foreign currency. That I expected, really. But all the documentation, the, the titles to things, the bank accounts, <sighs> there's still one in a slightly lesser-known Spanish bank, which has an office in Knightsbridge that has a load in it. That, that I don't, can't remember the signature. But even oh. <sighs> So you can't do anything in, in, in prison, but... Um, what I had done uh, was um, found a place to um, keep an address. And this is always quite good. You can still do this. If, say, you're, uh, it doesn't have to be in crime. Oh, you could be a Greenpeace activist. Yes. You could be fighting the regime in Burma or on the losing side of the Taiwan crisis. We should discuss that one time. But in... There used to be phone shops all around London at the time. 
Now, not so much because it's cheaper to call on, on deals or a friend's phone. <laughs> and they had a little computer services there. But they also had some letter boxes you could rent in the corner. And these were very ill-used in this one in South Kensington. I think there was eight of them. And nobody ever took them. But I, the key was a kind of universal generic key. So I went in there and nodded at the guy in the desk. And I didn't give a shit, you know. <laughs> went over there and um, opened it up. But here's the thing. You don't put your envelope with information in um, um, sitting in there. You make a panel that goes on the top and glue it in there. Mm. So even if somebody else rents the bo box in the meantime, as long as the damn thing physically exists anymore, you're in. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking at Amazon boxes, you know. <laughs> Interesting thing. Anyway, <laughs> that aside, but uh, a lot of names I got out of, uh, yeah, you go to, I mean, this might be a sideline, but the, the point is people are actually interested in how do you keep a long list, a diary, as it were, without anybody ever knowing. Uh, do you keep it in your computer files? No, 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 no. no. Do you keep it in anything connected to you? No. You go to the, well, I guess it'd have to be a public library now, uh, to get um, online. Uh, and then you start an email account, doesn't matter where. Make a draft letter. Inside, an attachment in that draft letter is just a, a Word document. And it's a long list of everything. You never send that draft. Mm. It just sits tucked away in your drafts. Mm. And it'll stay there. Well, I shouldn't say inactive accounts. They last quite a while. I mean, Google are trying to limit the amount of free storage they're giving with inactive accounts. But they never get rid of them. Mm. They almost can't. Um, they don't know what to call an inactive one. It's, 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 it, there's no draining activity or a lot of storage there. They just let it go. They never know when Adolf Eichmann might come out of retirement and uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, come forward to, to get it. So I, I had a lot of stuff from there. And um, I left Louise kind of dangling. She had another boyfriend, of course. Uh, but I checked out a flat. She, uh, he wasn't living there or anything. I mean, she, one of those girls, like a monkey in a way, never lets go of one branch without a firm grip on the next <laughs> one. Uh, <clears throat> but I didn't count him for much, whatever he was. And I was a little undecided as well myself because it had been so destructive. Um, in my early career, I'd uh, lost a, a wife through... Well, I always blame myself in a prison fire, and then I've had to say goodbye to a couple of people who, who weren't. I mean, what use was I? You know, even my brother used to be very sarcastic about that. Well, you found <clears throat> he'd say, "Somebody rang for you, tracked me down." Is that somebody you're exploiting or, or, or just misusing? But I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he's less cynical these days. <clears throat> we do as we start knocking on the old Grim Reaper's doorhouse. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm sure you'll find that little pass on it. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and went to, um, there, there was nothing else for it but to uh, go back into Scandinavia to see what was going on. <clears throat> um, 
not so good in Sweden. My uh, intermediary to a guy who I still had about a hundred grand coming had um, <clears throat> he'd been neglected. I mean, a very nice guy. Um, he was um, back in the days when it meant something. He was a photo editor at a magazine, but um, he was something that Thomas, his name was. It was always safer to keep somebody in between me and uh, the the big big man over there, because uh, Wolf, as is, there must be a million of them in Sweden with that nickname. Um, he was sort of wanted, uh, so he had to be a bit cautious. But and I'd arrived uh, at Thomas's place years earlier, uh, and I knew he was the right one. I was, and this was after um, Thailand. And I had nothing, but I had cargo. Uh, and, and I'd always remember that. If you were going to arrive back in the West, don't come empty-handed. It doesn't have to be a lot, but, you know, you, you've got to pay your way. And I think I had about um, I, 20 pounds left to my name. I couldn't have even paid my hotel bill. I didn't have a hotel. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it was nighttime. So I'd met him, and he has to be right. I've only heard about him through somebody who passed on, um, that he knew people. I mean, how thin is that? It's like going to New York City with a telephone number and say, ring Joe, he knows people. Is that going to work? <clears throat> anyway, uh, back then, years earlier, I'd knocked on the door and he was, he was kind of right. I mean, I had rung the number beforehand. But he didn't go into a lot of stuff. You like that in somebody, you know? Eh, they want to be told in person. They, they, let's not go into it. You come here. <clears throat> he lived by himself. He was a bachelor. He had a cat. Yeah. Uh, but the place looked right. It was kind of, he kept things, you know. I don't mean just family pictures, little knickknacks. It was sort of neat. The living was, I mostly lived in the bedroom. Complete junkie, of course. Um, <clears throat> and um, but he was kind of neglected. Um, just going back those few years to that night, everything worked out fine because I had cargo. Uh, I mean, we didn't even bring it up for fifteen minutes. Just chatted about world events, mutual friends, like there was one, and he was dead. Um, and he kind of looked at me and said. Um, you were, uh, oh yes, I do, <laughs> and here, and now. <laughs> so we got newspapers out, tools at the ready, taking this thing apart, but that was fine. But I found with him that he did need looking after. And I mean, if you, you, you probably come across people that if you leave them alone for a while and you come back, they're in a worse condition. That somehow, I mean, if they're really bad day, they haven't paid their rent, or but it's just, there wouldn't be proper food in the cupboards, and, and he looked skinnier, and the cat was fed all right, which was good, the litter box, which, but I would, in future, go around there with, I'd stop at the supermarket first, um, and, and get full groceries, and come around and sort his house out for him. So I was hoping that there'd be um, another happy little reunion with Thomas. No. Now, you know what annoyed me? Of course, he was dead. Neglect. Died in that apartment. 
um, much from from everything. Um, and I'd sent somebody over there um, to to look after him. Uh, well, not really, to pick up some money and make sure some stock was taken out of a safety deposit box there. Uh, that in, by the way, in Sweden, it, you'd think that it'd be difficult because they um, it's a full-on ID card state uh, and everything from cradle to grave, you're logged and registered. And they don't mind it. They pay huge income tax, I don't know, what, 70% or something. But everything is taken care of. So if you're not on the system, you don't exist. But what do they do with the visitors and foreigners? They make up the personal number, the personal number. And uh, they just call it a string of zeros or something. And so I'd open this safety deposit box uh, in a chatty way with my passport. And uh, to dodge what I knew would be potential problem, um, if you find yourself in such, such a situation where they're being helpful and just giving to fill in the blanks which, without which the screen won't go to the next stage of opening something or doing something, don't let them put a string of zeros in. Say, ah, let's use my phony date of birth, uh, and that way, you know, it's, it's you know, I'll remember it if I. Oh, okay. Now that kind of tricks the system into thinking, yeah, it's a real person as opposed to a foreign devil. Uh, so the time comes later on. Um, it's a bit like here and now in in Britain. This uh, talk of ID cards, isn't there again? Boris, who said he'd personally eat one uh, if he was ever asked to produce one, I guess he intends on using either rice paper or some flavoured ingredient in the ones that he's now favouring. Um, but no, there was no uh, kind of uh, reunion uh, back for that. But um, so I opened Simon's envelope, you know, the one he, he left me, and it had um, a visa card in there. And he'd written the PIN number, and in quotation marks, which means it was the card speaking to me, not him. <laughs> it was just the phrase, be gentle with me. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, yeah, limits these things. Sean, you've got to live. Yeah, no, no, make that the suite, yeah. Uh, mm. And get room service, yeah. Well, it wasn't quite that bad, but anyway, I had... Um, um, I had a couple of calls from another friend who uh, was in Denmark, so I, I flew over to Copenhagen. Um, <clears throat> there, and I've mentioned it in passing uh, just before, <clears throat> they have a place called Christiania. Have you heard of it? Mm -mm. Uh, well, it's um, a kind of... The, the, it's kind of a suburb, but it's a very inner city place. And it used to be, I believe, an army barracks, so it's kind of laid out a bit uniform. But it was taken over in the late 60s, 70s by a very dedicated hippies. It became a, a full, supposedly, self-sustaining um, commune. They had... Uh, a little industry there. I think, do they still make these bicycles? You know, those irritating bicycles. People have a huge, I don't know, box stuck on the front of it, and they deliver things, mm. groaning up hills <laughs> as they strain themselves. 
No wonder they all have heart attacks or get run over by trucks. Anyway, that's their <laughs> legit business. But amongst all the other stuff there, there's um, a couple of other general store and a pub. Um, and um, I'd been told to come at a kind of a particular time by Florence. Now, Florence was at the other end of this number that I still had. And we met at, um, it's quite a good place to meet if you ever have to have a meeting in Copenhagen. Uh, Theateret, the theater, is right in the center, seven ways in, lots of ways out. Um, we used the uh, telephone code, which seemed to be, uh, it wasn't popular enough to be well known, but it's simply that if you arrange a time uh, and a day, um, you put those times and days uh, one day ahead and three hours ahead in your conversation. So uh, if it's going to be Monday, you say, I'll see you at Tuesday at 6 p.m. That means Monday at 3 p.m. Mm -hmm. Why are you putting ahead? If you do it the other way around, um, say you've said at, um, at 3 p.m., but in fact at 6 they might get there at three and hang around till mm. six, so dedicated they be, whoever they are. But um, now the reason for all this caution was that uh, my friend Emil, um, the Danish guy, was in prison with a bunch of other people, including Lithuanians, a couple of Russians, um, over a big hash run from uh, Pakistan again. Well, I wasn't heading back that way, no matter what. Anyway, I didn't even know at that stage what, what was the point of all this. Uh, you know. <clears throat> but um, I met Florence, and then I went to Christiania the next day. If you go in through the main gate, um, look, they, a very right-wing, uh, what was his name, Rasmussen, uh, Prime Minister of... Uh, Denmark, more or less closed it down, but it's kind of sprung open. It was a bit of a tourist draw. It's got um, a big set of uh, trailers and stalls and caravans in the, in the center street there, which sell uh, ready-made reefers, uh, little blocks of hash, you know, quite a, a good commercial way. Um, it, they're... Um, blocked up, the weights are good, the prices are not exorbitant. I used to buy a couple of ready-made joints um, because I'm too lazy to roll them. Never a big smoker anyway, Sean, just uh, sometimes before closing in for the evening, kind of when I was a bachelor and when I was younger. I don't know. I just... You know that old uh, Huey Lewis song years ago, I Want a New Drug? Um, How's he... it go? I want a new drug. Has yeah. <laughs> David ever sang for us before? <laughs> uh, now, the only thing I, I sang for my uh, YouTubers, not sang, I, I did some 60s um, American comedies, uh, theme show songs as poetry. Wow. Um, such as uh, Beverly Hillbillies. 
This is a story of a man named Jed. A poor man neighbor kept his family fed. When one day he was hunting for some food, up through the ground came a bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Texas tea. Texas tea. (laughs) (laughs) I read these things out in a a sonorous, poetic voice. (laughs) And unfortunately, quite a few um, uh, less old (laughs) people didn't, they thought I was doing it. Legitimately, I mean, I'd announced these poems as coming from the great uh, New York beat poet from the 1960s, you know, uh, Kalsonowski or something like that, you know. And even gingered it up by having in the comment section an angry uh, comment from his granddaughter or something saying, Kalsonowski was not like that, you know, he was a good man. But um, I'd kind of parked those uh, videos. They're around there somewhere. I mean, a lot of those theme songs make quite good poetry. Like, Green Acres is a place to be. Did you ever see that show? <laughs> About a lawyer who moves into the country. What they did show well. a lot um, on in the Arizona jail was um, Rawhide, is it? Oh, yeah, with Clint Eastwood. With the, with the Cowboys, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the Rawhide song is a classic. Yeah. It was made even more popular by being sung... Uh, by the Blues Brothers in that movie. Oh. And it's got whip-cracking sounds in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Any song with whip-cracking, you know. Can you do the sounds? Well, no, I can't do a whip-crack. It's gonna... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that'll come through. I don't know. <laughs> right. uh, in fact, it was in the comedy Blazing Saddles, they used uh, whip-cracking sounds to make ironic... What was his name? Frankie Lane. He used to be the great uh, singer of uh, Westernish gibberish songs quite a good voice for it but we digress you can catch that on david's channel in the description box yeah and it better be late at night and you better be drunk (laughs) (laughs) no other way you can take that stuff (laughs) i think i've got two comments you don't look well david (laughs) shadow boom shadow that was part of it you know uh so uh christiania yes uh I was about to tell everybody that um, if you go there just to buy a bit of stock or just to be a tourist, nose around, perhaps get one of their irritating bicycles. Don't use the main gates. There's a couple of policemen whose job is just to sit over there watching the place. If you go around uh, two corners, there's a little skinny entranceway. Eh, It just looks a bit rubbishy with a few weeds growing around it and, and iron bars but you can slip in the side that way. No, these bits of information you might think are utterly trivial, but I get a lot of mail over those. You know, where is that gate? Well, I haven't said that one yet. Now, the people in there, including, uh, who's dead now that I can talk about? Pierre Mons, that's with a G. Um, Anyway, it doesn't matter who they were, Floyd. Uh, They were kind of Christiania nobility. They'd been there in the early days. They'd fought the battles in the streets with the police. They'd hidden the stuff. They'd even built the tunnel that crosses the river underneath from the place. Uh, Or is that known yet? (laughs) Sorry. Um, But, um, and they had, they weren't entirely hippie-ish. They'd had a kind of duplex place they'd converted out of a factory with big open spaces and all of that kind of thing. So this was the story I heard and what I was there for. David, oh, 
we can't leave here. No. Uh, we'll join Emil in prison if we go out. Okay, so stay. But we don't know what happened. Is it somebody here? Somebody we don't trust? Mm, maybe you can find out. <laughs> wait, 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 what am I? You know, Joe Detective. No. Uh, you, well, why would I know you know Russians? Well, it's true. I had let it be known that I knew Russians. Eh, we'll come to that. Um, and it was 12 tons of hash uh, arranged by a Pakistani guy in the middle, who's, but he lives here um, in England. And the ship was obtained through um, Lithuanians and Russians. Now, I mean, you, don't you get the feeling as I'm describing this that um, you're, let's just say you're Mr. Big Enough in Scandinavia and you uh, really like the idea of having 12 tons of hash floating around Christiania or somebody nearby. I mean, these are not huge economies. You'd be surprised what they can take. Yeah. Um, and it's already so high priced there. It's not like it's going to go backwards to the what the supermarket in the dam, as they refer to Amsterdam. Um, so, but the downside too is that the class of smugglers and, and organized crooks are limited. There's the Christiania kind of crowd, that background, or um, two groups of bikers, uh, Hell's Angels and um, Banditos who, of course, you'd know it, are at war with each other. Um, though they tend to um, focus on speedier type uh, uh, mind-altering substances. So, um, okay, uh, and now the, the reason I can't, I can't just go and see Emil in prison because this is what happens in that part of the world. If you're arrested, you go straight away into a section of the prison which is on isolation. You don't see any other, well, you might see them walking around through as, as they open the door to give you food, but the the officers bring the food around in a kind of bain-marie trolley. Um, the only exercise you get is half an hour each day in a special yard, which is a big circular thing, but divided like the sections of an orange so that it's one person to each, and no talking. You know, there's a tap code and a grunt code. But surprisingly, if you think, oh, hell with that, and start talking to the guy next door, you, you miss out your exercise for the next day. Uh, they've had a bit of a battering of the, uh, from the European Union over it, but often it went on for a long time. On one case, Emil, who's older than I am, if you can imagine such a creature, um, He'd spent 22 months on this isolation. Now, visit? Forget about it. Papers from the court? No, you're not going to get You don't get to see your charge papers, except in the presence of your lawyer, and he can't give you a copy. Nothing to remain in the prison. If you want a visit, yeah, sure, you can have one. It's going to be in the police station, in the very investigative office in which the officers who arrested you are part of. So they approve whoever comes to see you, and um, they get to listen in. They get to listen in, and you're not allowed to talk about the case. 
So, uh, I mean, they're not bad about it. Uh, I, you know, I've often asked myself in this very chair, you know, I'd be saying, Sean, I wondered at the time what it'd be like to be in Supermax. Or I'd say, Sean, I wondered what it'd be like to be in some Asian hellhole. And you know what? The question gets answered, doesn't it? Anyway, I won't jump ahead too far here. Because, I mean, I've been through a lot, but the world's changing a little bit. Um, the kind of writing was on the wall even in 99. You know, it was the first um, from 96. I'd seen that it was going to be a digitized world. Uh, computers were going to be significant in a... Um, a much bigger way, and even the criminal world would naturally gravitate that way. And the earlier one, you know, thought about it, the more understanding one would have. <laughs> and as all viewers of your channels and various things, they want understanding, don't they? Absolutely, mm, indeed. And lucky you're here to provide that, <laughs> and your range of reprobate guests. <laughs> um, so. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I met, um, th there was no way to see Emil and, and ask him what, what he could contribute. And what's the point? He's in prison. He's not going to be able to tell me anything. The, the people involved told me all they knew, and it just seemed more and more confusing. And I'm not surprised they wanted an outsider to, um, now what was, why was it, why would I be doing this? Why anything? I was kind of looking for an excuse to look up my old Russian mates. Um, so that seemed like a interesting. And oh, they were going to pay me, of course. They're very good payers, the Scandinavians, even in the criminal world. They get paid for lots of stuff. Uh, I mean, they have people who look after their things. Um, they don't like self-storage places, for example. There's not many of them, only a couple, um, generally speaking. Um, and they don't like hiding things in places. They want somebody responsible for it. But it shows you how honest, even within the crook world, that they can be. Because, I mean, can you imagine you had, I don't know, 25 family-sized jars of ecstasy tablets. And uh, you didn't really want to leave them around the house. I know. I'll give them to Blind Freddy. He'll look after them. Nobody knows him. He's only got his granny. Uh, it, the thought would not even, if it crossed your mind, you'd the next scene would be uh, Blind Freddy being held up by two policemen as he feverishly tries to squash all of these ecstasy tablets down his throat. Or Blind Freddy beat up in an alleyway someplace because he's been a bit short of a quid and decided to sell a few jars. And uh, the next time you see Blind Freddy, apart from sporting a black eye and a sad face, you open the cupboard and say, Pretty... I think I'm going to have to make a connection between the state of you and the empty cupboard here. <laughs> no, we wouldn't consider it, but they do that kind of thing there. Um, so uh, the ship's name was the Kvadana, 
which is hard to say and hard to find. It had sailed from uh, Guadaport, uh, down in the um, Arabian Sea, and it had went through a transshipment at the Dubai's Yebel Ali Free Trade Zone, which is kind of like um, world travellers. Uh, the Colon, which is in Panama City. Have you heard of that one? Mm-mm. If you're a ship owner and you go through Panama, you can unload your goods because, say, it's going to another ship heading the other way or something. And instead of un- unloading them in a country as such, they have a, a free trade zone. And in Panama, it's called the Colon. Mm. And it's like a little sub-city. Mm. It's got a gate and everything. <laughs> and you can rent a warehouse. <laughs> and electricity and running water. What more could you possibly <laughs> want? <laughs> Good sewerage system, I guess. That's what a canal's for. Um, it's got a bit of reputation, Colon. And, well, Yebel Ali Free Trade Zone has two, but I knew Basha from shipping in there. So that was helpful. Um, uh, yeah, I can tell you wondering how much I was going to get paid. N- not a huge amount, but I mean, it was like 20000 which would have been welcome at the time. Um, yeah, not krona, that's 200,000 krona. <clears throat> you know, they have 1,000 krona notes. Yeah, quite big ones. What's that worth in pounds? 100 quid. Uh, all right. I think there's still hundred pound Scottish notes. Have they withdrawn those? I don't know. We should. They, have... they were for a long, long time. It'd make life easier if we had hundred pound notes, wouldn't it? Um. Yeah. People are so worried about forgeries, though, aren't they? Mm. I mean, even a fifty. Every time you get one, some idiots rip the corner of it to see whether the forgers have um, conquered that metallic strip thing a long time ago. And you try spending it. Got to get my manager's approval. Mm. <laughs> Even a 20 gets rubbed with something or scanned. Mm. Or, um, there is no kind of say. But in spending power, yes, it would be useful. I mean, a 20 now is what a tenner used to be in spending exactly. terms. So, mm, Just for inflation. It doesn't matter much. Um, but I did kind of... Um, have some reservations as to whether this was wise. I was sitting uh, in a cafe eating a creme caramel. Well, you say? Yes, because it sort of trembled on the plate and was pale. And I remembered, was reminded then, of something else kind of pale and sensing to tremble, was something I totally misunderstood uh, back in Pakistan, when um, he'd, he'd had a kind of uh, dispute with a, another <clears throat> politician, shall we call him that? I mean, gangsters, but they're always, they invent a political party, and some of them are quite ridiculous in a way. Uh, there's still a group of people who follow, um, let me see if I got this right. Uh, you know, the, you might have heard of the Bhutto family. There was uh, Ali Bhutto, who used to be prime minister over there, got executed by the general. Daughter, Benazir, was prime minister a couple of times. Brought in a death penalty thing over drugs. I didn't like her so much after that. But anyway, um, her husband, 
became another prime minister. So the whole Bhutto family was a big thing. Um, and one of the other sons was a guy killed in Paris. They say he was poisoned. It's like the Kennedys in a crazy way, you know, sort of Asian mm. version of the Kennedys. Yeah, things are going a bit slow in the popularity. Yeah, one of us knocked off, you know. <laughs> that always works. Um, and the one who died in Paris had a wife. She's a Lebanese woman. Uh, they say all sorts of terrible things about her over there. But believe it or not, she had her own political party. And so some of these gangsters attached themselves to something like that. So, But Norjohn, uh, people are not finding this confusing, but play it back a couple of times. <laughs> uh, I'm still in Scandinavia, but I'm reminded in a cautionary way of a meeting that took place between um, his lordships, it was lordship and his kind of declared enemy, very kind of tense meeting in one of those dark houses there with the drapes drawn and the furniture with the plastic on them and all of that, and the gooey confectionery cake on the table. I could half follow what was going on, but I kind of excused myself to have a little snoop around and noticed a couple of guys um, um, pouring. I'd seen it before. They, they, they run a little still down there, and they make a kind of cheap vodka. So it's a living, bit of bootlegging. It's not completely outlawed alcohol in Pakistan. If you're a Christian, you can buy <laughs> from a Christian uh, <laughs> alcohol shop, and um, they make a local beer, which is not too bad. Anyway. The other thing in my snooping I saw down at the uh, enemy of my friend place was I opened a big freezer expecting this was where they kept the alcohol. But uh, I looked in and there were a lot of plucked pigeons or something wrapped up in cling film. And I'd said later on after the meeting, I'd said, uh, is there some game shooting around here or something like that? Uh what? No. What, are you kidding? Not down the coast? No, nothing. No, I didn't really bring it up if I'd had the sense to say something. See, the point was, Norjohn uh, was being pushed into this meeting because a lot of his, uh, while he was in prison, before he got bailed out, a lot of people he knew that had been guarantors for bail had been disappearing. Uh, documents were coming back, uh, signed in, in their name and all of that. Um, and, you know, he wasn't accusing the other guy of doing something to them, but kidnapping somebody and keeping them um, for a while to get them to sign over a house or go guarantor for one of your cronies who's in prison as a bail application. Yeah, there are lots of uses people can be put to in that regard if they're property owners. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, why does a creme caramel in... Uh, uh, in Copenhagen, remind me of a plucked pigeon in a fridge, because it wasn't a plucked pigeon, of course, was it? Can you guess what that was I saw? Human parts. Indeed, they were the hands of Norjohn's missing friends. The heads. Hands. Hands. Yes, the hands. Why the hand? Because all documents ah. there had to have the thumbprint. Ah. So they'd be partially thawed, the thumbprint would go down on the document, and then they'd be bailing people out, going guarantor for loans, doing all sorts of transactions, even though they were not just handless, but everythingless.
and part of the Macaron Coast. And I was thinking of this because I was saying to myself, from small things, big trouble can come. <clears throat> Nonetheless, I finished my creme caramel because survival <laughs> means never missing a meal, Sean. <laughs> I don't have to tell you that. <laughs> or reach for a banana. Yeah. Um, it can. Um, I mean, the, um, one of the things that struck me about your in in your books was often the reference to terrible food that uh, you had to endure from Sheriff Arapio or what's Arpaio. his name? Arpaio. Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Uh-huh. I'll just have a little sip of my um, cappuccino this morning. I, I made it. And don't forget, David's links are in the description box, including his channel link. If you want to fall asleep listening to that soothing eloquent voice i think a lot of people do uh, fall asleep uh i should do um bedtime stories you should mm. Mm. Um, well please subscribe before you do fall asleep listening to his soothing eloquent voice. yeah uh okay nonetheless undeterred um uh, i moved on now um i had a couple of the lithuanian uh guys' names, this ship had been intercepted in um, northern European waters in what seemed to be um, a bit of a fight between various agencies who all had something to say about it. Uh, the British didn't really want the ship, but they were quite happy to uh, arrest on a conspiracy charge the English guy who was who'd supplied or arranged the supply of this stuff over there. Um, the, the main bulk of the trial ended up in Copenhagen because that's where there were enough Lithuanians and enough Danes and Christiania people to arrest and throw in jail. Um, but they wouldn't be heard of before the actual trial. I mean, they treat you quite well afterwards, but uh, not, not, uh, you don't get to hear much otherwise. Uh, actually, it's quite creepy. But um, the here was the thing. I, I'd, I'd left it for about three weeks because after something's happened, if some, if you're near or standing close or, or friends or something, there's been a, a big arrest. Don't run in straight away um, in some kind of panic, trying to find out and do and fix and save, because. It won't help, and it'll still be fresh in the investigators' minds. Um, you need them to settle down a bit. So I left it for, um, I think it was about three weeks, something like that, and kind of quietly coaxed um, Eloise back uh, into the fold, as it were. Had um, she changed? Not really. Hair looked different. It was bigger. It was kind of 80s hair. Yeah. Dallas and Dynasty. Yeah, well, it certainly had the size. John you know. Collins. Uh, like kind of <laughs> Indian chief. <you> know, <laughs> headwear. <laughs> Big chief date no more. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, boyfriend. Uh, but um, she never liked to travel. I mean, she... she Definitely on planes, but um, 
I did um, manage to get uh, her, her into Copenhagen, and I thought I can't really leave and leave her. I had a meeting, but I, I, I couldn't leave her alone. So I had an old school teacher, a um, friend of mine that lived there, and he was so nice and cuddly. I thought. I said, Peter, t t take Eloise out for, for lunch or something. I'm a bit of shopping, you know. Orleans is a big shop there. Go in there, you know, whatever. Just keep it damn well busy until three o'clock. Yeah, she stood by this. No, uh, she, uh, where's that? No, I want to go back to the hotel. So she's already there by the time I've I've made my excuses saying I'm going down to uh for a walk around the the block and have a coffee or, or some damn thing, you know. But I walk back in like in my overcoat, clearly having come from somewhere else. Oh, and you know why? Extra clearly, because still in my hand, because I'm in the process of switching it off, is um, the distinctive little black box with the uh, um, two or three sometimes antennae poking up. What is it? It's that thing, uh, fellow should always have it a, a meeting with unknowns. It's a jammer of all um, radio traffic. Oh. It jams uh, all cellular phones and all frequencies are from about um, 100 megacycles up. In fact, they don't even use those. All the uh, bugs and transmitters and radio mics uh, have that... Um, or way above that, usually UHF or, or, or bigger. And um, it even had a little switch on this, which had a um, high-pitched frequency that you couldn't hear above 16K. But it would be so loud uh, to the microphones, their automatic thing that sets the recording volume would go into overdrive and they'd miss most of the conversation because it, it was down. It's a bit like those things you get for your car which has got infrared lights on it and the, uh, the so the car number plate can't be read from behind uh, by those pesky freelance speed <laughs> camera guys <laughs> I presume there are such a thing I wouldn't <laughs> say you do this against the police no no we want the help <laughs> often I think that um, so this wasn't a good image me coming back in a um, you know uh, detectives uh macintosh and sporting what looked like the head of the devil glowing <laughs> and pinging red lights like eyes and mm. with its horns of black so um i mean but there was always patching up with her but i um before i started my um the next place to go was moscow and the and the russians uh so i thought the one thing that Oh, yes, I'd met um, Emil's wife, and she said that he did keep uh, a storage box, a locker, a little room somewhere. Now, there's only two places around town, in, or there was at that time in Copenhagen, that you could do that. One you'd never use if your life depended on it. A notorious, if it had been back in wartime, he'd be the kind of guy that uh, would inform on Jews to the Nazis. I mean, he had post boxes there, but he was always in them you know, going through people's mail. And <laughs> luckily he'd made such a pest of himself ringing the police with hot tips. They used to put the phone down on him. Um, but <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Uh, this other one was down near the airport, but um, it wasn't like there was anything I said to uh, 
Emily's wife. What is there stuff in there or what? Let me know. No, no, no. It's just a. Um, he's got all his paintings or something in there. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not going to. Uh, there were some documents that um, that was the dangerous thing, uh, supposedly. I mean, you're going to buy the story. Um, it's a bit like some. They're like some scammer, I suppose, who says this whole thing is not about emptying your bank account. It's uh, it's about uh, it's a document fraud or, or something. You know? um, I mean, people at the moment uh, apparently um, frauds of that kind, scams, are so huge at the moment. One and a half billion or something. There's known to have been relieved from people falling for telephone scams, uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, like, do you ever get, you must get those text messages, don't you, that purport to be from HSBC, a bank, or um, HMRC, a tax and revenue somewhere, saying, unless um, your name's been put on a bad list, somebody's into your account, and they have a link. Now, the fact that this came from a, a mobile phone should tip off most people. I mean, really, you're not falling for this, people, surely. But what would put the nail in the coffin on it would be that um, the link that's supposed to save you from all sorts of trouble, like having your internet disconnected or wherever it might be, um, is a kind of made-up link. It's got words in it that sound like, like this morning's, which HSBC... Uh, secure line or something like that something encouraging but with dots all over the place i mean very you click on that link you're just opening yourself up to it so um somewhere back at a, in in fraud nation there's the smoke screen that something's a documentary or getting money out of a bank in africa now emil was a, a friend so i, I didn't really send anything think anything hugely of it, but I wasn't going to be running around with his stuff, artworks or documents or, or whatever. But I, I mean, I, I didn't know he had a lot of paintings. So I said to his wife, you, know, you can't do it. No, they're all over me, waiting for uh, me to attend to his affairs. Well, what's the documents? The documents are, um, it shows the trail of some of the money that went to buy the ship and all of that. Okay, sort of. Well, um, what do we do uh, when there's something in the storage locker somewhere around, or a little room, or whatever it might be, rented, and you've got to get in there and play with it, but you don't want to be known for having done so? Um, any solutions come to mind? Mm. Well, while you're thinking about, <laughs> as you think upon that, like, and as oh look, there's a viewer out there who's actually caught onto it. Well done, <laughs> James. No, no, no. Joe, come to mind. <laughs> no, um, oh, that one. That other viewer has got himself in trouble. He's gone in there pretending to be the guy who's like, no, no, that won't work. What you do is you go to the place and rent your own locker. Oh. They give you the grand tour. You know the number of the one you're interested in. And you say, oh, that, that, 
as you near the number, it's about the size I need. Yeah. Have you have you got any like that? That does it. Well, there's one empty in this little stretch of the thing. Yeah. Well, which side? Uh, yeah. So you narrow it down mm. as close as you can, and you rent one yourself there. Now, most people who have things in lockers like that, you have uh, combination uh, locks on there because the day might come when they want to give away all their money. <laughs> I mean, have a friend come and look after things, mm. <laughs> get themselves in more trouble. <laughs> oh, God. Or sensibly leave the damn thing there, and if it was, you know, it was going to get taken, it, it would have done so already. Um, nonetheless, I rather unhappily um, went there and uh, rented a place, eyed off the one. He, he hasn't put a combination lock on it. She doesn't know, uh, his wife, uh, what the number is. So, stuck? No, it's an ordinary padlock, uh, which, as people probably know, so it's no great secret, you only need an old, old Coca-Cola tin. <laughs> Uh, and cut out a strip about uh, five millimeters by twelve or ten, a bit longer, so you can get a grip on the thing, and um, slide it around the the bolt that locks on and push it down into it. Mm. Uh, skinny enough, it'll go in there and pop it open. And just use a razor blade to cut that out. Uh, well, um, a hobby knife's a bit stronger. A razor blade's not really like a Stanley knife or something. Yeah. Box cutter, as the Americans mm. like to say. Um, in fact, they're, they're good for a lot of things, little strips of metal. Um, Such as? Well, you know those things, I mean, sometimes, can you imagine you've rented a holiday home and the key, they've told you, is in one of those little boxes on the wall, mm. the lock safe, yeah. And lo and behold, you've lost the number to it. Mm. And incredibly, you can't get a hold of them. And astonishingly, there's no way around it because you need to get in your place before the Well, anyway, you need to get in and relax on your holiday at Airbnb. So you take the same strip I just described, but um, get some um, toenail cutters and cut a little notch out of one end. But this time you're not curling it around, you're keeping it straight. Oh. Yeah. You... Poke the thing down the right-hand side of this uh, master lock, or whatever they damn well call themselves, and rotate the wheels up one at a time until you feel a click. Now, don't be a sucker. That's not the number that you see in front of you. It's the number on the opposite side. And it, it depends on the size of the wheel, but you, you'll find, having played with it for a minute, that uh, a six is opposite um, a two or something like that, and then a three is opposite a seven. So that, that's the number you want. So you just work your way down one by one. Mm. You've been given the number. You dial it to the opposites. Bing. It's over. Wow. So, I mean, their accommodation problem solved. Mm. However, locker problem not entirely solved um, because I had to kind of, choose a moment and place was all camera up. Um, but um, reasonable fortune, the doorway of the one I'd chosen happened to kind of, when it was open, had covered the doorway of his. So relative to where the camera was, it, it wouldn't necessarily see me going in there. Uh, okay, fine. Anyway, my, my 
fears were unwarranted. The said papers were uh, uh, kind of in there. Um, they weren't very incriminating, but um, I um, took those with me to get rid of them. Um, um, the paintings, I don't know where I wanted to keep them. I couldn't see any point in um, it. I mean, I, I gave them a pretty good check, you know, so it wasn't a painting with like an, an inch of cocaine or something. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, in any event, um, I just made sure I could pay up more of his and, and leave them there. But I still wanted to keep an eye on the place. So, um, and I had nothing in mind. So I emptied those out and put empty cardboard boxes in, in mind to look like there was something and sealed it up. But I had um, a, some other plan for that next time in town. Um, in fact, I had to go to, um, what's that place where they, they used to sell all uh, electronic gear? Um, it's near a big tube station. Um, um, uh, it'll, it'll come to me. Uh, it's a street name near Google. Not Google. Um uh, Anyway, it's down where a huge paper chase uh, shop is. Tottenham Court Road, that's it. Mm. You'll be floating. I mean, where are these memories? I mean, that and you're groping around for something and you've sent little you know, minions up there to go and find some <laughs> thing you're trying to think of and you get it. What the hell's going on? And there's some seeker operation going on in our brains. <laughs> Unfortunately, there is. Mine is mostly a bunch of very stupid people. <laughs> Um, ah, okay, uh, the reason I refer us now to uh, Tottenham Court Road is because having sent Eloise down to Paper Chase to buy a whole lot of, you know, she's interested in some art, she'd put murals all over her flat, was to um, buy a whole lot of paper and, and uh, paints and stuff, and something to keep her busy while I got into the electronic shops and bought myself what I'd need for over there, for the, for the lockers, which was just something I could monitor it. Now, here's the second part of our problem. We've got into the locker, but how do we keep an eye on it? We want to know if anybody's got an interest in us mm. sniffing around. Also, we want to know if anybody's got an interest in our friend who's got one next door. Surveillance device, then. Yeah, but uh, it can't be, it has to be self-contained and not too elaborate. Now, what it was, was... Um, simply um, an ordinary infrared alarm detector, but what that would do was uh, link to an auto-dialer on a mobile phone. So um, if the sensor went off, it would dial a number. And what number? The number went, it was a glorious thing hey, in the good old days. It was a contractless, nameless, over-the-counter pager. <laughs> you bought it, and part of the, the number to, to ring in was a premium number, so that's how they made their money. Not on the device, but the service. They take your messages and so on. But you could also, your message giver could simply ring you and use the uh, DTMF, you know, the beep, beep, beep sounds from a mobile keypad. 
uh, and put triple six or something on there. <laughs> I remember all those pager codes. Uh, yeah, and alert you to something or other. You know, in 1471 used to be uh, somebody got in somewhere they shouldn't have, so on. Um, so that's the idea. Uh, somebody goes in snooping around. Uh, it'll trigger the auto dialer before they can do anything about it. It's rung it through. My pager goes off. Uh, and I know. So all that's in place. But uh, I think I got caught on that one too. Because by the time I got back to Eloise, she's got like, a, I don't know, one sheet of A4 paper or something in a plastic bag. Where's all the boxes of Newton and Abbott, finest oils and all of that? No, wasn't having any of that. Um, the recovery position for her was her normal state of affairs, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> but um, I uh, then went to Moscow because the, the, the Lithuanians hadn't really said anything, uh, but I knew they were kind of hiding something. And I'd been down to um, the um, uh, the docklands down there in Copenhagen. They have a kind of pen which is behind not particularly secure uh, chicken wiring, which has the boats that haven't paid tax and things that have been seized. And the Kvadnano was down there. Um, apparently there were a few claims on it. Um, my friend in... Dubai, Basha told me that um, they um, put in phony paperwork on uh, paying for the refuel on it. So, you know, they're traveling, leaving a, a trail, as it were, anyway. And I took a couple of pictures of it because I didn't want to be hanging around a, a, an impounding dock, you know, with a, a camera. Um, phones weren't so good in those days for taking pictures. But... Um, I, I thought that would be, uh, it might tell me something. And sort of did when I um, looked on the computer at the digitized picture, if I cranked up the saturation, where Kvadnana was painted over, it did look like there was another name under there mm. somewhere or had been. Okay, so Lithuanians aren't going to help, so uh, Moscow it is that I go. Yeah, right. Um, now, um, who is it I'm seeing? I'm seeing uh, Andreas and... Andreas. Andreas. You remember Andreas. This is one of the best stories in the whole series was the Russians yeah. in the prison. Well, just to outline that for people well, who can't be bothered searching uh, uh, around for it. Um, and, and for the wider picture on this, are we doing for time? We're still okay. Yeah, yeah, we're fine. No, good. Plenty of time. Um, Andreas and his little yeah. Moscow street gang go way back. We did, and it kind of ties in with um, history here. Um, they back in the uh, the Soviet Union days. Um, this was before Glasnost, not that anybody remembers that, before, um, what's his name, with a stain over his head? Um, it was Gorbachev. Yeah, Gorbachev, yeah. 
uh, loosened up things and before the Berlin Wall came down. To be a, a criminal uh, as such in the Soviet Union was um, a very isolated and, and, and narrow thing to be. It was certainly nothing like what we'd imagine. Um, a street gang is what they kind of loosely uh, called them back then. Were very unique tattoos. Yes. Um, they had a kind of a code. I forget the name for it. It sounds like the word paranoia but, uh, in Russian, paranoia or something like that. Um, it really doesn't translate very well anyway because the, the word only means notions or, or, or thoughts or something. But what it is is a um, collection of principles, as it were, um, that come up through living in prisons. So, so all of these jail babies who have grown up a bit in the system. Now, in the Russian prison system, there's um, three levels, uh, at least. Um, then none of them are particularly good. Um, but, um, and the, for example, the people who are lifers, um, murderers, uh, mass rapists or something, if anybody had the energy for that, they um, they would go to a high-level prison and, and conditions are very tough there. Like, even if you move from one place to another, you, two guards come along and you're bent over double and frog-marched in, in a very uncomfortable position. Oh, when they open the door for a high-security prisoner there, um, before they come in, even if they're doing a search, the prisoner has to go over to one wall and kind of prostrate himself against the, uh, the um, side of the wall. But uh, Andreas and his um, bunch were not, they, I mean, they were Moscow people. So I suppose in terms of street gangs, they're a little bit more sophisticated, but not much. It's still a very streety thing. The local cops know them. How do they make their money? They're, they're not even in the class where um, they had a big black market goods thing going on. I mean, that, that's a quite a classy thing by comparison. All they had was toughness. That's their only virtue. And they had this sort of early jail code or whatever. You know, what, what, it, it's full of gibberish rules, but... Um, and. One of them is that if somebody gets, you can't be a member of it if you'd been raped in prison. They're, they're excluded completely. So I guess they keep a lot of secrets. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, but they, they'd really make their money by um, extortion from local traders. And there'd be other people trying to extort money from local traders. So they'd have to be tougher than that lot. So, as I say, the only thing they had going for them is, is really toughness. Now, I, um, in 1988, um, Andreas's gang is quite biggish. Uh, well, I say big, it's, it's over 10 and alive and out at the same time, but they weren't out for long. And one thing that, um, because they were at mid-level of prisoners, not at the really harsh end. They were allowed in the prison cities, which have names like Perm 39 and Perm 18. 
it's like the whole town is is based on this ten thousand strong prison. Um, that's the industry. The civilians who live and work in that town are all part of the the prison network. Like Sols and Nietzsche. Mm, yeah, yeah. He like like one of the gulags, I suppose. Um, but um, and they have you know little things they're allowed to do. Sometimes they can have that sauna once a month, and um, they they can have visits to the women's section, and they have the odd marriage in there too, and. Um, so they, they got a kind of a life, but so it was a bad thing when um, half of uh, Andreas's group was sent to another prison city, and um, he'd already fought it out within that prison itself to be fairly much at the top, which is no slight thing to to do, as as you. You know yourself, you can't, to dominate in a prison, you can't necessarily be the one who does the action. You can't be known as one who ordered a murder, for example, or for somebody to slip in the shower and never recover, uh, or choke on a chicken bone, <laughs> which is stuck in the side of the head. Um, because the authorities will say, oh, this is a bit much, we'll, you know, move him to there and split, split out the group. So you... You have to do it in a ruthless but thoughtful way. And and I guess a ruthless yet thoughtful is what uh, Andreas had going for him. And he did um, uh, okay, well, he asked to be transferred with his guys to the other one or they to him. And, and sometimes they would have gone along with that. But I, I think they just didn't want them all together. That would be too much of a handful. Or they were friendly with the opposition. I mean, who knows? Anyway, they didn't go along with it, and Andreas wasn't taking any of that. So um, now the reason you don't hear much about breakouts from those sort of prisons is that generally speaking, there's nowhere to go. It's not like they're all in Siberia, but they are in quite isolated zones, and um, you don't... Um, if you stole a vehicle, it would stand out. Now, this, bear in mind, this is the, the Soviet era, um, and this makes quite a big difference to what happens next. Um, Andreas, from where he is, um, breaks out of the prison. Now, that is not an astonishing thing, because you could kind of do that, um, but hey, because it didn't take... I mean, sure, there was a wall and somebody watching and an alarm and everything, but they didn't really worry about that too much because where are they going to go? All they do is setting themselves up for a beating when they get caught. It's not a big concern. But he's thought this through and uh, is in a place where they it's not a, a drive-to town. They have an airport. Not only that, um, he sort of bungled this bit up, but um, there were some apparatchiks or what do you call them, deputy heads uh, around in the area, or so he thought or heard, and he thought they might be a bit more cooperative um, when he made demands. And why could he make demands? Because he and the boys have been broken out, have gone straight to the airport, the opposite way to where anybody would think they'd go because it's back in you know, crossing into town, and 
um, straight out. The airport's not sure they had a fence and a gate, but it wasn't massive high security. And it's not like they had uh, a modern facilities where there's a finger connecting to the um, plane or anything. Straight onto the tarm tarmac at, uh, at the flight they had in mind. And the reason they had this one in, it was a relative long haul. So it was a slightly bigger tupolev. I think, uh, um, I can't remember, it was with a 138 or something, something sizable anyway. Um, and, and just because the uh, stairs are still into position and there's still um, passengers boarding on that, uh, that was their bit of luck, but that was about it. Um, they got on there and um, said, uh, that they wanted to be, it was the, the prison's own fault, they never reunited them back, this is their demand. Now the authorities, of course, say, well, yeah, all right, you get what, you'll all be back together. No, 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 we don't. They kind of realized there's no proper end game to this. So um, they fool around for a while, um, trying to think of solutions, but... Um, the plan all along that he, Andreas didn't really tell the other guys because they would have thought this will never work, is to close it up. They've got um, at least 16 people on board who are, well, we'll call them civilians, but people who flew planes in the Soviet era were barely civilians. You know, they were, they were people in government. So there's a bit of some good fortune. And one of them is high enough up so it, it, it matters um, as to, to what happens to him. <clears throat> it's still relatively early in the morning, so the plane's up in the air and they're giving the orders. Uh, th this wasn't all just accepted straight away. This is uh, you know, a couple of unpleasant looking remains were thrown off the, the, the top of the, the ramp to con be convincing. I mean, the authorities are fine, they're going to kill all these people anyway, but they don't want to, uh, and the story isn't anywhere as yet. It's, it's all, you can imagine Soviet-era Russia is, is nothing, it's contained. But um, when the plane is forced to land at the other prison city where the rest of the gang is, this is not entirely good. Uh, but <laughs> one on board who's a bit higher up says, all right, they, they were offered all sorts. Of, I mean, there was like half a day's worth of tricks to try and get them to, to go into the other prison or, or keep some hostages. Or, you know, it went to the limits of my comprehension of uh, all the variables that took place, but they... They ended up with the, the rest of the gang, or most of them, I think one missed out, back on there. And that was given the okay by the slightly higher up one. And they, the authorities didn't want to really identify this guy, but they were in communication through the captain, and, but they'd, they'd spotted that. Uh, the um, um, the co-pilot had come out a couple of times and spoken to a guy, and they realized that this, this guy matters. Um, <clears throat> uh, now, the, the others have come out. They, they've got them onto the plane, but 
they say that they're going to the things fueled up a bit, but they make they they have and quite a bit to. But they say they want to go back to Moscow where they came from. They'll turn themselves in, uh, and the high up one has to be uh, make sure that he's in in good shape. But they're listening to the communications between the radio tower and the captain, so they 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 don't. It's really hard to get too much on, except, and even they were smart enough not to let anybody go up those stairs except those who mattered. They weren't going to have like some escort or food delivery or anything like that. Um, I think there were some things that were delivered to it, but um, they were left down. Anyway, um, they take off ready to go to Moscow. And they won't leave until. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The the guy gave the, the one who counted signaled from the from the window that this is okay. Go along with that. Um, uh, they get up into the air. Uh, now, did I, uh, they they did land at uh, not Moscow proper airport, but they have another little place like. You know, in the UK, we use Stansted for all hijackings. Um, and every, and where is it in the United States? If you hijack a plane and fly in, you don't go to JFK. If you're around that area, I think you go to Bangor, Maine or something. It's where one reason or another you, you get directed. Or I think it's there. People no doubt correct me as to where your life will come to an end in the hijacking <laughs> game. But... Uh, I don't even know which one it is at, uh, in Pakistan. It's Hyderabad. Um, they, they managed to get off back up into the air at Moscow. Now, the, the reason that they're being a little bit more cooperative than you'd imagine Russians would be, is that, because not only are there, um, there's some people that matter who are on that flight, now, if this were today, I wouldn't think it would be the same because the flight would be composed of probably more, much more regular people. And who, who matters in Russia anymore? It depends how you're going that week with uh, Vladimir. Um, <clears throat> so um, they, they're allowed to take off because the guy gives his hand signal again, the big cheese. It should be said that he wasn't entirely giving that hand signal of his own free will. Andreas had picked up on what was saving their bacon that day. And he wasn't entirely, the big guy was not entirely alive, I think is the word I'm groping for at the time. So there's a bit, bit of glove puppetry going on there at that window. <laughs> My hands again. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Come to haunt me. Elite motif. Mm. <laughs> Um, now, I didn't know any of all this stuff until I met them in Pakistan, when I myself had been kind of disappeared to Hyderabad prison, and I, I had mentioned before I met them, and it was so uh, extraordinary to find. Uh, I mean, there were, there were no real foreigners to speak of, but these were the foreigners that I was directed to there, and there were some of the, uh, the gang left. They, they'd and got back into um, uh, into into Pakistan, and they chose that because it was being run back in eighty eight by General Zia Al Haq, 
who was kind of against everybody. So it didn't do them very much good. They ended up with a life sentence, but they realized that uh, that wasn't a really good thing to be, they wanted to get rid of them at some point, so the appeal courts reduced that to 10. Now, when I came across them, they were, um, and in fact, I had met, um, yeah, some of them had been sent back earlier. They didn't want them all back on a plane at the same time. But they were coming to the end of it. And they'd had a, a quite a rough or oh, adventurous time in prison. Um, they'd fought guards. They'd killed a couple of those. I mean, it, it's strange again. You'd think their lives would have been over before that. But amongst prisoners, they'd killed, I don't know, nobody had an accurate figure on that. But I don't know, it was at least 16. Um and so they weren't to be trifled with. What well, they look like these guys? Well, um, Andreas was not big. He had that Slavic muscularity, though. You know that solid thing. You could feel you could punch him a lot, and it wouldn't do any good. Reminded me of um, uh, a schoolboy uh, nemesis of mine in primary school called Konstachinsky. Other kids could fight a kid fight, you know, beff, 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 but. Konstachinsky, he was kind of like, um, um, it, it was, um, it was a guy was in the, the oh, Charles Bronson, was, who was, um, I think it was Polish or Czech or something originally, Bukowski or something was his, his real last name. Um, anyway, it had that kind of dense muscularity that Andreas had. And of course, uh, as I've mentioned before, he had um, been in hunger strikes, which involved uh, force feeding um, and daily beatings or something, which meant nothing to him. But um, that was just part of it. It's strange they wouldn't take certain things, but if it was part of what the thing that happens when you do such and such, I mean, wouldn't take a, a, a beating from a, a, a guard, but if it was part of what happened to you when... Uh, you know, if you get whipped when you're on a hunger strike, oh, that's part of it. So you accept that. I mean, very rules-based. But he wasn't going to accept being force-fed. That was clearly not within the the code. And uh, I that had come up because I'd asked him about the gaps in his teeth. Uh, his uh, premolars were all missing, top, bottom, both sides. And that's because of the feeding device, which was a a jaw-clamping steel contraption shoved in to keep your passageways open long enough to put the tube down to send in these uh, watery dull or whatever it is that's going to keep you alive. But he didn't think much of that and clamped down with his, again, strong Slavic jaw muscles as though um, chewing oh, eight million bubble gum or something like that Oof. and crushed his own teeth. Which would take some doing. And I think, too, that um, because he was the, the focus of his group, uh, that meant something. Did they, have, was, did they look, have a look in their eyes, like a dangerous look? No, oddly enough, but just sort of friendly. Mm. Um, at, at one stage, I was trying to get Andreas a, um, a passport Um because he uh, later on, after I'd got out of Hyderabad, he was sent down to um, Karachi again, and uh, he needed to. They'd taken him to the airport, but there was nobody there to meet him. And 
um, the local official said, look, um, you're released in a sense, but you'll have to go back to the prison if you don't do something, uh, which was a bit of money, but also he needed something resembling a passport. So uh, we ran around trying to find anything, didn't matter what, but couldn't, he wasn't around long enough for us to get the picture taken and properly. But anyway, we were, we were friendly enough and I was kind of curious that. So with that background, they went back in, um, what would it have been, 98 or something like that. Um, and at first it was to, literally to Siberian prisons. Uh, there were about eight of them left alive. Two, uh, two died during all of this. Um, there was a Vladimir amongst them, but it wasn't very memorable. Alexei was tall uh, and kind of... You could put them together. Look, if you put them together, you'd know you had a little gang on your hands. If you had them separately, you just think, Regular Russian maudlin alcoholic psychopath. Nothing unusual at all to see there, really. Um, Did they play chess? <clears throat> no, they played it, but um, not very well, as far as I could tell. Um, and um, but I'll never really know because everybody made sure they lost them, <laughs> <laughs> as they would. <clears throat> the um, um, what now that. Here's this odd position they found themselves in. They they didn't really serve particularly long for um, the hijacking. And I think the same reason they survived to get out of there uh, with it was because it was a huge embarrassment. Um, the case was barely reported. You know, when I started looking, uh, I mean, because it was 88, it was sort of pre-internet, really. So the records aren't around, but um, the, really the Russian authorities certainly, I mean, they're bad enough when they lose a submarine, aren't they? Uh, they're not going to report that a bunch of prisoners have broken out of the prison, A, and then B, oh, they've just gone to the airport and C, they've, they've taken a plane and left the country. No, they, they don't like that story. But here's what they missed. And as I met Andreas in... Um, uh, it's called Tversky Walkway. It's a kind of a uh, cafe street of uh, Moscow. Um, what they missed out on was the huge transition. They, what would have happened if they'd stayed there, stayed there in, in, in Russia? What happened to their friends, the people they knew? Massive things. Uh, as we know, there was the... Um, the transition of leaders until Putin came along. I remember talking about Putin, so there must have been, um, at some stage he was, uh, but it was after that. Boris Yeltsin was in for a while, wasn't he? I remember the tanks. Uh, and they had the, the Russian White House, and that was defended and all of that. <clears throat> but um, they... they it wasn't like they could go back to their old ways. I mean, they're, they're, they're 10 years older, but they were going back to something, and they wanted to be part of it. Um, and we can look at it like this. 
all the people back from the Soviet era who had positions of anything had either been killed off or done well. Those who were in government, uh, as you, you know, the um, KGB people either stayed there and called themselves something else or they went into business. Anybody who had control over any um, state enterprise, you know, particularly oil or, or um, minerals or whatever it might be, they all became big until they were sort of they got too independent, they were kind of pounced upon. And we've got a few in London, you know, expatriate ones living in, in fear of their Novichok. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean anyway? Some silly Novichok. It, it means little one or stranger or, or it doesn't mean poison. Yeah. It, anyway, that's what it is. Um, a nerve agent. Um, I don't think I'd like to be fooling around with that, would you? No, absolutely not. Oh, what are you doing, Joe? Oh, I'm in the Novichok business. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, well, I just put my fingers under here. Plutonium's so not blood. a good way to go either, is it? No, no. <laughs> um, anything that's going to uh, eat away your organs. I don't know whether they ever caught up with that Chernobyl, the TV series. But it's worth watching. It's got a very authentic Russian feel. In mm. fact, that's what... When I first got there, I loved every bit of it. I mean, um, my hotel was shit, but I quite liked it. Uh, I was looking at everything. I wanted to know why the why things looked Russian, you know, what the powerpoints were designed like, and was everything as chunky and and brutalist uh, as, as as I thought. And a lot of things sort of were, and it hadn't been that long since. Um, well, there'd been the transform. Transformations, of course, but um, that the sort of wild westish kind of um, new capitalism had settled a bit uh, by that ten years later. What year were you there? Uh, this was two thousand. Okay. So, um, and that shows you how long uh, Putin's been in power. Yeah. Because uh, he must have been in. We were talking about him then. Of course, my friends all thought he was a good guy. My parents went in the 80s for the Olympic Games. Okay, but was it before 89? It would have been, wouldn't it? I think so, yeah. Oh, it was yeah, the yeah. 1980 Games were yeah, Russia, yeah. weren't they? My sister, when she was a little kid, won a painting competition in the Daily Mirror, ah. and the prize was to go and watch the Olympic Games in Russia. Ah, right. Um. What did your parents think of the place? Oh, yeah, they're blown away by it. Yeah, Fascinating. Yeah. No, it, whatever, even, I mean, the food's crap, but then again, that's why they drink, I guess, a lot. Um, but I, I think for us, everything's interesting, mm. even if it's strange. And yeah. the stranger it is, the more interesting it is. So I, I found everything a distraction. I'd taken Russian at school um, because um, the school I was at had this, kind of phony baloney language lab. You know, you sit in a little place with a kind of padding like this so you could put the headphones on and learn the language. Well, the reason I took it was because I needed a place to sleep um, <laughs> when I got there in the mornings too because I'd had late nights. So I thought, well, I can't see what you're doing in the booth, so I'll take Russian. So I didn't really pick up much of it, uh, except I do remember fondly my wonderful Russian language textbook, which painted the most glowing picture <laughs> of a land of plenty. I mean, it showed vegetable markets and uh, sort of shows and people always appearing to be in national dress of whichever region they came from. 
um, the union was very big on union at that time. Mm. Um, and I'm sure like uh, former East Germans uh, look back rather fondly for some mad reason at the certainties of uh, that time. But perhaps that's all it was. There were some certainties. You couldn't had to wait five years for a telephone. It cost you 5,000 rubles or something. But you, well, I remember showing us everybody the, the uh, videos of the bread queues. Oh, they were there. When I was a kid, bread queues. Oh, yeah. And they used to tell us that um, the Russians were going to drop nuclear bombs and we should have nuclear bomb shelters in our backyards. There was a popular notion, kind of a panic for nuclear bomb shelters. Uh, It was very big in the US where people uh, wanted to build their bunker. Yeah. Uh, Didn't they know that you could never come out of it? (laughs) What is it, the half-life of some of those dangerous... uh, uh, particles is that like forty thousand years, years or something? <laughs> yeah, it's quite a bit of uh, catching up on your old videos to do, isn't it? Yeah. Forty thousand years. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, still, um, yeah. Um, anyway, it was it was kind of uh, as distracted as I was. I was only really meant to be there for a couple of days, um, but. Rather than mix up two stories at once, uh, um, just deal with the um, the ship that I was tasked to find out. Uh, it was Andreas who said that um, the Lithuanian was well known in um, what's that chunk of uh, Russia that's separated by a bit of land? Is it uh, starts with a K? Kalinsk, Kalinsk. Something it'll come to me again, but um, it seemed, and and you could that ship, and you could see it from the picture I'd taken was originally the Antonis. It had been used for cigarette smuggling and other things, and it had been seized in this other. Um, oh, gee, it sounds like Kalinisk. Anyway, been seized in that port with a whole lot of stolen BMWs on it and the Lithuanians were involved. Mm. So when they arranged the the purchase of this boat, instead of getting one that didn't have a history, they got one that was already known. Hot boat. Yeah. Um, and there were, uh, there were some other kind of um, uh, unpleasant things about it. Um, yeah, from... Uh, from my point of view, um, it seems that the region, reason that there was such a, um, a, a big fuss over uh, which agencies were going to be behind it, that this ship was tracked uh, from the time it was in the Gulf in the Arabian Sea and went up through that way past Socotra mm-hmm. Island and all of that. And it was tracked by the Americans who had taken a renewed interest in um, things in the Middle East that once didn't affect them much, it only affected their allies. Uh, It's a bit like, um, you know, they've always been directly or indirectly involved in everywhere from Syria to Jordan to Israel and so on, but they weren't. I think it was the USS Cole had been rammed Mm. by a couple of people, and that was just about this time. So, um, of course, suicide attackers are, are nothing new. They've been around since, 
I don't know, um, certainly since the 60s, I remember them. And one of the first ones that stuck in my mind was a, um, a Christian fundamentalist, oddly enough, from Lebanon. She, Kayla, Kayla, she uh, had got onto a plane at Beirut Airport and blown it up with herself. Um, so all of that was not new, but it was new-ish uh, uh, to the to the Americans who uh, <laughs> didn't like the idea that a couple of rubber dinghies loaded with explosives could uh, kill a, even one sailor aboard a big ship. Now the ship was never in any danger, but they were down in that area and tracking shipping movements. So theirs was the first technical intervention on that, but they weren't going to get involved in what was, to them, clearly a smuggling thing. Mm. But... Um, because of the um, uh, the information they had on it, uh, it was uh, linked to Denmark and the uh, Lithuanians and some Latvians and Russians, of course, uh, because um, this boat was uh, bought back out of being impounded at a relatively cheap rate so that um, the Christianian folk, I mean, they had very deep pockets for funding things. Um, I mean, they knew it was going to be a, a kind of a, a half million dollar operation anyway. Um, didn't blanch at the thought, but I mean, you, you'd have to expect if there was any profiteering to be done and somebody says, oh, we, yes, we've got a ship that's going to cost 120000 uh, that particular gift horse, you want to look straight in the mouth and see what's wrong with it, but they... Um, I eventually said to uh, Emil, look, I mean, didn't you feel uncomfortable there were so many people that you couldn't check out in this? Uh, yeah, but you've got to try things to see it. I don't know. Just, mm. I don't know. I mean, bad things have happened to me, but I never went on the basis of try it and see it will work. And, and, and that lot. Now, all of these people, I, I did ask... Um, um, you know, how he was fitting in Andreas, but not terribly well. Um, I thought of them as, uh, I've spoken about the Wild West before, but I thought of them a bit like those old cowboys in, in the Wild Bunch movie. Now, that was where they were all <laughs> Wild West bandits, but they were getting on. And it was 1912 or something where the, that set, and they're just behind the times. Um, I think it was the first Western I've seen where people use automatic pistols because that um, Colt 911, the famous 45, that goes back to then. So, um, and in in the film, those people never worked out and were kind of worn down and annihilated and. And, and went out with it. And, okay, a couple of the guys had been sensible enough to kind of feign an illness or, or, or something to get out of it, but uh, Andreas never could. And even even while I was there, the, the, the two-day trip ended up being more like 10 um, because, um, well... I, I couldn't think, I needed, I had, a, well, was, it, was it a plan? Not much. There, it, if you want to do something in Iran, 
um, your only safe way of operating there is through a kind of a... The Soviet Union and the Russians had a kind of presence there all along, and they weren't as deeply suspicious. Um, But um, I wanted to know a little bit more about was there anything as much as I admired their persistence and survivability, was there anything that was ever going to come of it? Because they just didn't have, um, they didn't have the great skills, you know, they'd missed the computer era. Now, the few people they knew from their old days had um, gone, um, either, as I said, had been kind of wiped off the map or become quite big as um, open security companies that ended up more like extortion agencies than uh, of the old days, or um, had um, started working for government people by sort of bullying their way into different enterprises. Uh, they weren't, hmm, I'm going to put it, they weren't chess players enough to see through how they were being manipulated by others. Because they still had their, that's all they had, their reputation, um, even their old friends who'd survived. I mean, you'd have to think about it. What kind of person is going to survive such transitions? They're going to be devious and manipulative and all of that. When, uh, at the time they were hired, uh, they were supposed to go and um, trash the apartment and not kill, but terrorize, rough up the the brother of um, some, oh, how can I explain it? One of their old friends had become a bit of a businessman. He had his own enterprises and building concerns and construction. He was up against, he wanted properties um, that had already been licensed to somebody else. He tried bribing the officials but they were already being bought by the competitor. He wanted to, uh, he told Andreas, to um, remind this other one that they were still part of the street gang dedicated group and come what may, you're not going to succeed. Um, uh, You know, we will end, or you will come to an end. Now, um, bear in mind, I'm getting, I've got, um, and Dre's English was never much good, and I'm getting bits of it, and I've got one of the guys as sort of translator, so not really getting enough of this information to be any good. And when I'd say things back, um, Andres would say, I, oh, you, David, you don't understand. No, this will be right because of something or other. And um, it just seemed to me that um, why would they be going to rough up the guy's brother? You would rough him up. And, um, okay, the brother was living in this apartment, but um, it, it just it didn't really add up. But they they were so at a loss for a job and so wanting to demonstrate themselves. Um, so that they, they went in there and they did a pretty, I mean, did a pretty good terrorizing job, and um, that had 
That has happened really uh, about the next day after I arrived, and suddenly the mood had changed. I think they could have drawn their conclusions by the fact that they didn't go, they went for the guy's brother, not for the main man. Their so called friend, who was part of the street gang fraternity, who hired them on to do this job, stepped in suddenly as best friend and protector of the property developer, saying, No, I know who these people are. I can protect you from them, the scum that they are. And, um, he he knew too that um, the boys would have helped themselves to a few things around the uh, the apartment whenever they could, and they did. Uh, I can't remember what, uh, but anything that glittered and looked heavy. <laughs> um, so they um, he had even evidence um, because he'd bought that um, cigar case or whatever it was that uh, he had things. Out. So suddenly, Andreas is now not only unpaid, but um, hunted um, by the guy that is still claiming to be their friend. I mean, it, it, they I think they could see through it, but um, it was getting... Um, I, I was trying to learn really quickly. Um, we're at the back of a, um, a set of flats that um, were kind of Soviet era, I guess. Um, and not everybody was together, but um, we were talking about reading the street before, but I could read the emptiness downstairs. Suddenly, mothers had come and taken children away. Um, somebody decided to go off this way. There was unnatural quiet. Uh, and I'm starting to think, uh, no, I'm supposed to remember the ways out of here. Um, but um, there were no real heroics in this. I didn't feel confident to stay around. Uh, and I just thought, I'm, I'm going to end up dead. I heard lots of um, heated discussions uh, upstairs, and uh, Andreas was still alive by phone later on that night. But um, uh, apart from a, a little bit of preparatory work, uh, uh, it seemed best for me to get out of town on that one. Um, it, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I still like to go back and see what it's like today, uh, Russia, but it'd be completely different. This was, as I say, it was just a decade after the, the big changes had taken place. Um, and they, um, you, you think of how conscious, um, uh, it's, it's just taken for, for granted that all, even fairly strong-willed and, people are determined to stay in power. They, they're very media conscious. Putin, I think he still has it every week, a, um, a TV show in which he feigns to take on, you know, Joe Citizen's calls and, and, and seems to be interested in things. Doesn't he like to do... Um, he speaks English. You know? Wrestling or something as well. He's very macho, the way they portray him. It's very oh, macho. yeah, didn't they have him wrestling bears and something in the snow? <laughs> wrestling bears. Uh, so, well, I mean, was this a gag or was it true? You're supposed to have been flying with geese across the world. Um, yeah, he, uh, um, 
I think that it's got to be a put on that one. <laughs> you know, they bonded him with the, the mother goose or something, and then with his eyes or something, and then yeah. So that when they migrated, he was going to fly with them, or like men of like historic goats. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, of course, um, uh, Andreas. Uh, how long did he survive all of that? Um, until about. Longer than I thought. It was 2004 when, um, and I thought he was lucky to live that long. He, he made it to that. But um, at least uh, my reporter on the scene, or second on the scene, uh, somebody who um, he has uh, uh, tangled up with... Um, Ukrainian girlfriends. Uh, he, he was a bit of a conduit to um, that. Because uh, I told you, didn't I, that um, uh, Robbie the Scot, who was another Pakistan uh, inmate resident, accused unreasonably of a, um, I don't know, a six billion uh, oil pipeline fraud or something or other. <laughs> you can imagine how that excited the guards in there. Um, he'd ended up with. Um, uh, Tatiana, the, the oh, Russian, yeah. Russian girl, <laughs> who had been used by her Nigerian student husband to <laughs> smuggle a couple of kilos <laughs> with a baby. Oh, it was a nightmare. Anyway, she'd, uh, she stuck with Robbie, and she used to, and I got in touch with her anyway over, um, because I, there's, there's enough in the, in the Russians' extended story, I thought, to uh, write a book about it. But I don't get time to finish my breakfast, so I don't know whether that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're sensible, I'll get hit by a truck, and then you can, uh, what you do is you take all of our recordings and uh, knock them out as a, a Macmillan tribute <laughs> library. <laughs> uh, Remember, it was his idea. <laughs> <laughs> See, you've got all the material. Uh, that's, that's why I come down here every couple of months, because I figure... You know, uh, when something unexpectedly takes me away, at least I can bequeath you something. You you'll you'll have a kind of twelve episodes, at least two and a half hours each. Mm, what's that turn into in books? Almost thirty hours. That's three books. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, look, the uh, audio book world hasn't fully formed yet. <laughs> They're going to be like little plays in the end, and they'll be like a kind of uh, there'll be whisper-synced Kindle editions and, and print books, but the real thing will be the sound and, yeah. and, and the voice behind it. People will be clamoring for your voice mm. in your absence, but, scarcity but value. <laughs> you can flesh up that uh, 18, uh, three books worth the 30 hours uh, into probably 50 with giving some uh, research and background on my vagaries. <laughs> and, uh, so um, it... Um, that's going to be the way of the world, isn't it? We'll have to reach we out. We should be the first. We'll have to reach out to the remaining characters that are still alive. Yes, that's true. We've got to have a black book on that one to, uh, yes. uh, if you need to get them to uh, talk for a while. What was the fate of Andreas then? Oh, a policeman got in touch with me the uh, the other day. Oh, oh that oh, <laughs> from back in Operation Ares, the Australian thing back in the uh, 1979, 80. 
Wow. Um, he wasn't very high up, but um, Kermit was his name. He was one Kermit. of the Kermit. Yeah, it's not his real name's Derek, but um, he um, he sent me some memorabilia from there, the little awards they got. I'm not sure why Kermit thought I'd be mm. wanting that. I said, "Yeah, I'll have a copy made of the plaque you got and stick it mm. in my office wall." But uh, some. Um, Mug shots from back then. I didn't look happy. Oh, well. Um, you got anything James could use? Yeah, probably, yeah. Um, because it was the traditional mug shot in those days with the number and uh, front and profile. We need to put your mug shot on a thumbnail. Yeah, yeah, yeah it'll be handy. Yeah. So are we wrapping up now then for, until the next installment? Uh, not quite. If, okay. if I've got a few minutes, yeah, I go need for it. to... Um, uh, say one thing because Eloise is still dangling on a hook. Exactly, she is um, on the lookout for cobs, little country cottages. You know those things that look like uh, they're wearing a beetle's wig on top of their head, <laughs> thatched roofs, and all around. Uh, she said she wanted to nestle there. <laughs> nestle? I don't think I'd be nestling there. I might be in a rocking chair, <laughs> nestling back and forth with a shotgun in my lap and chewing tobacco instead of smoking so I don't let the people who are coming to get us at night know that I'm here. <laughs> and never chew tobacco, you get cancer in the mouth. Um, oh, they do in Sweden, snus, another bit of thing you pick up in your troubles. But um, keep this in mind uh, before we move on to uh, other subjects. Um, uh, I have um, said to, I've got back to town, I've concluded the thing with Christianity, they actually paid me something, but uh, it was never really settled up. Um, I've uh, taken care of that. It's a Saturday morning. Now, I, I know that Saturday morning particularly because um, I, as I left on the Thursday night um, to go back into Scandinavia, uh, pick up some money, and I was heading back to the airport. I was going to pick up my pager. You remember the pager? The pager is the thing that the auto dialer does. Yeah. And I realize it won't work outside of the UK. So um, Eloise is staying at my little uh, bachelor pad at the time. And I, I remember it being on the, the shelf up at the top there, and but switched on and, and set to vibrate. Um, and as I'm on my way to the airport, I've got a couple of hours to kill. So I'm going to call in at the... Um, the lockers uh, because I've got a few things I can't be bothered I didn't want to have check-in luggage because that meant a, a different way through arriving back at Terminal 2 um, but had I known had I known to that I could alert Eloise to these things or anybody she would have seen on that shelf in my bachelor pad a little pager start to vibrate and move its way along, go to the end, and fall off the bookshelf <laughs> into the waste paper bin, <laughs> which is where my life is headed soon. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh dear. Yes. And the fate of Andreas. Andreas, um, that was the thing. Robbie said, oh, he was killed in the crossfire. I said, look, I'm sick of hearing about pe people being killed in crossfire. What the fuck is crossfire? You've got to be 
heading the wrong way. The only people killed in crossfire is like the wrong friendly fire soldiers or, or, or somebody who runs stupidly across the street during a shootout on both sides. It wasn't a crossfire at all. It was, <clears throat> he'd been grabbed by three people. They had him trussed up. He had a gun in his hand uh, and he wasn't going to go out without as many of them. So the real story, he, he had the neck of one of them in his mouth. Uh, the other one had just had his legs shot to pieces. Uh, and he had the, the other guy's gun wedged under his arm, but he pulled off a shot and it went through some important stuff that he never recovered from. Oh, so no. three to one it took to get him, but <clears throat> he went down. And what a guy. I, I didn't do too much apart from uh, Tatiana said that, you know, there were people that were from his past and supposed to be friends. Well, isn't that something you never heard before? <laughs> so poor old Andres. You know, all, all the good guys in these stories, they're not, oh. not making it, are they? But, uh, if you want to go back over it. the past episodes and hear the, the other riveting mm. sagas of the Russians and, and all of these other reoccurring characters, the, the David's playlist is in the description box, as is the link to his YouTube channel. As are the links to his books. We've got the two books. Uh, and watch um, Escape. Uh, have you seen Mr. Robot? I finally caught up with it. It was a strange guy, something Malik, the buggy eyed actor who was in the remake of uh, Papillon. Um, it's, uh, Christian Slater was behind it. It's a series, it's on Prime. It's the only thing I found worth watching. It's a bunch, about a bunch of hackers who bring about. Um, a kind of uh, end of the world financial meltdown going up against evil corp. It's a bit of a fantasy, but it's it's um, it's on reasonably solid ground on the the hacking and you know, taking over people's lives. He's a little genius, this guy, but he's also got some psychological problems. Keeps imagining his dead father is talking to him and taking over his personality, which he does from time to time. Mr. Robot is, yeah, yeah, it's the only thing I've seen of late which keeps me going. Uh, like, I tune into it every week, uh, everything, even the news. I mean, by the way, before we close, here's a question. Is Iron Dome just um, a smoke and mirrors act? What we are seeing is it that these, um, the, the defense uh, ballistic missile system that uh, Israel is developed with American money by Raphael uh, Armaplating or whatever it's called. Uh, and when the Gazans, yeah, prefer that to Palestinians, Gazans send over all their rockets in great numbers, so they must have been planning this, um, and the idea is to overwhelm the system. But they say the system's so smart, it distinguishes between it tracks the trajectory, not just so it can blow it up, but also to see where it's going to land, that, whether it's an important place it's going to land, whether it's going to hurt anybody, whether it's a built-up area or, or just farmland or something. That seems an awful lot of smart for fractions of a second. So are we seeing, uh, since you can't see um, the Israeli, uh, sorry, the um, Hamas's rockets, um, unless it's on infrared film, 
what we're seeing is the uh, Iron Dome rockets going up, and they say, oh, so one just blew up. That means it got a target. Well, it'd be proximity, wouldn't it? They wouldn't actually make contact. But <clears throat> is, it, uh, is, it, is it just a sideshow? It reminds me of the Scuds when Saddam's Scuds were getting shot down by... They Ray didn't do it. Well, Ray Reagan, Reagan had his yeah. thing, didn't he? Mm. Um, if you do want to watch something rather exciting, David has a movie out, Australian Underbelly Movie. And oh, it's been around for a while now, Sean. This is uh, me at 20 to 25 or something like that. But interesting enough for David, a TV movie. David also has a Danny Dyer's Deadliest Men episode. Oh, if you're very desperate, this is uh, <laughs> Danny at his most uh, relaxed, shall we say that, you know what I mean? It's spooky when they get on the boat, though. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. And just, just, yeah, those bits of trivia are all around, or, or my channel, uh, in which um, I'm going to be doing something soon on the stuff we have. That, now, famously, George Carlin, the comedian, did a great bit. If you look up my stuff and George Carlin, you'll see him talking about going on holidays and having a place to put his stuff and, you know, what is a house? It's really just a covering for our stuff. And when I travel, I've got to have a little version of my stuff. When I get there, I unpack it and this stuff goes here and that stuff will go there. And that's all we do. We spend our lives putting our stuff everywhere. And um, it, I filmed just the herbs and spices that we keep in the cupboard. And rode them up and it was like six tables worth and just some of my tools and I just buy them obsessively for their uniqueness. I've got things to strap on, things to hold and we do have a lot of stuff and I thought that might be a subject worth, have you got too much stuff in your life? Is this too much stuff for you? You still here after two and a half hours? I don't know. As people say, you could just read the phone book, David, and people would just want to listen to your voice. And waiting to get through the Zig Zigmans so it would come to an end. <laughs> so if you do want to hear more of David's voice, we recommend his channel, which is in the description box. All kinds of um, sagas and let's not say tips, let's say cautionary tales from his... Advice, really. <laughs> Advisories and warnings to be careful and to know in advance... It's almost like stepping into the future, some of my crap. <laughs> right. Thank you to all the subscribers. S subscription logos in the corner of the screen down there. Mm -hmm. And huge thank you to Joe and James for coming out and filming these podcasts. So please let us know in the comments what you thought about today. If you have any questions for David, we will tack them on to the next installment. Ask well, away. And... Uh, Make them as technical as you like, because even though I'm no longer involved in the underworld, <laughs> I hear things. Right. <laughs> I pay attention. Yeah. I suspect David's going to be incarcerated in a European <laughs> facility in the next <laughs> install. We're going to find out what that is like. All right, I'll okay. give us a hug. Yes, let's try not to flash our microphones. I can barely stand. Cheers. I work so hard. Well done. Thank you very much.